30 for 30 podcast is brought to you by Delta Airlines. Delta flies to 300 cities around the world. That's 300 cities where everyone does the same things you do. That's 300 cities where the people in those 300 cities think they're the only ones who know about that one place. 300 cities where people miss someone in one of the other 299 cities. 300 cities where people sing in the car or in the shower or both poorly. Delta isn't flying to 300 cities merely to bring us together, but to show us we're not that far apart in the first place. Delta, keep climbing. Hello, and welcome to the 30 for 30 podcast. My name is Jody Avergan. Our special summer series is back, marking the 10th anniversary of the 30 for 30 film series. We're going to do five more episodes, all leading up to a big announcement of our next season of audio documentaries. We're very excited about that. But now let's focus on this anniversary series. We've been having lots of fun. So we're going to get into it today with a talk about one of my personal favorites, a film that definitely comes up when you ask anyone about the most memorable 30 for 30s. It's the story of two men, one a feared drug lord, the other an iconic athlete, and the sport they both loved. In Colombia, soccer was a religion. It was sacred ground. The Two Escobars follows the intersecting lives of Pablo and Andres Escobar, who were not related but did come from the same city, Medellin. There, Andres became a soccer star who would one day be the captain of Colombia's national soccer team. And Pablo, while Pablo Escobar needs little introduction as the head of the Medellin cartel, his cocaine empire made him one of the world's most notorious criminals and also one of its richest men. Pablo and his fellow narco-billionaires funneled loads of money into Colombia's soccer teams in the late 80s and early 90s, all while the effects of the drug trade cast a dark shadow over the country. Fear is a very powerful motivator. People knock on your door and say, Lato y pluma. Do you want to take the silver or you want to take the lead? Every time, you take the silver. Pablo Escobar was more powerful because he was more bloody. But going into the 1994 World Cup, players like Andres saw the tournament as a chance to proudly represent their country. And they were a really good team. But it all came crashing down with a devastating 2-1 loss to the United States. Colombia defender Andres Escobar accidentally kicked the ball into his own net. Colombia, one of the favorites going in, was eliminated in the first round. The team returned home. Tragically, Andres Escobar was shot and killed back in Colombia just 10 days after that own goal. Sources allege his murder was an act of retribution as drug lords the Gallon brothers faced heavy gambling losses after that Colombia defeat. Pablo and Andres Escobar continue to leave a big impact on their country even 25 years after their deaths. To talk about the film, we've invited directors Jeff and Mike Zimblis, the Zimblis brothers, to chat. Welcome to the 30 for 30 podcast. Thank you for doing this as part of our anniversary series. Thanks for having us on. Our pleasure. Look, I'll tell you, I give myself a quota of asking about the title of something, maybe like once or twice a year. I don't like <laughs> questions about titles, but I will ask about this one. Was there ever a chance that the story was going to be called anything other than the two Escobars when your two main characters have the same last name? We actually didn't know it was a dual protagonist film at first. We, I think we hoped that there was going to be enough connective tissue between the two Escobars, Andres and Pablo. But more so in the in the initial stages, this was a, an investigation into a look into the circumstances around the murder of Andres Escobar. And we knew at the time that you couldn't really understand um, an incident that horrific 
without understanding how a society or a culture would allow for an athlete to be murdered based on a mistake that he made on a playing field. So inherent to the to the premise was that we were going to have to look at the society of Colombia at the time in order to understand the culture and society at that time. You had to understand this phenomena of narco football or narco soccer. Um, which is the uh, sort of adulterous marriage of cocaine billionaires and drug traffickers on the one hand and the teams that they loved on the other. And in order to understand narco culture, narco football, you had to understand the impact that Pablo Escobar had at the time. So Pablo and the narco era really dropped a, a, a bomb, both proverbial and literal, on the society. Escobar was a criminal machine. I mean, he was able to do things that, when you see it from today's perspective, are unthinkable. Two other bombs went off at government-owned banks in the city. The this morning outside. Authorities reported at least 70 dead and over 500 injured. The Medellin cartel are now believed responsible for over 5,000 deaths in Colombia, including over 500 police officers. shortly after takeoff in Colombia today, killing all 107 passengers aboard. It's a kind of Bin Laden of those times, narco-terrorism. You were reporting this out um, almost 20 years after the story, but was it still hard to get people to talk about this given the subject matter? Yeah. We, we were down living in Medellin for, I think, uh, the better part of a year before we actually started filming. Um, and uh, part of that was just because we wanted to, to dig in and get roots and start to do some journalism about the story. Uh, part of it was, you know, starting to form some relationships with some of the key figures in the film and sort of establish uh, trust and talk a little bit about what we were hoping to do. So that was a, a really helpful part of the process. Yeah, these, there's deep wounds in the society and deep divisions. Either you're uh, in the camp of um, being a beneficiary of Pablo's generosity, the the working class or the um, the working poor, as it were, who got schools and health uh, insurance and soccer fields, or you had lost family members to um, acts of violence that were initiated by Pablo and uh, were terrorized during that time period. So it was a very divided um, society, even decades later when we were there, and. A lot of those wounds and a lot of that trauma uh, hadn't been discussed because it wasn't safe to, to discuss it. You never knew who you were talking to and yeah. which side of that divide they were on. And so uh, a lot of the emotion was fresh and there was a lot of fear with our interviewees when we sat down with them. Um, we shot 37 interviews. We only ended up using around 15 of those in the film. A lot of the decisions we made not to use interviews was to make sure that we weren't incriminating or um, in any way affecting the safety of an interviewee that wouldn't have been the safest thing to reveal. You do include an interview with one of Pablo's hitmen who says that he's killed uh, 250 people. He admits that on tape. Yo calculo que mi propia mano, pues yo he ejecutado por ahí, asesinado por ahí 250 personas. But only a sociopath keeps count. Yeah, only a sociopath would keep count. I think a psychopath, he said, right? Only a psychopath right, keeps yeah. count. Pero solamente un psicópata que las cuenta. So why, you know, include that information and leave some other information out? In his case, uh, John Jairo Velasquez Vasquez is, you know, was imprisoned for uh, his role in the Medellin cartel. And so, you know, it was something that he was able to speak about. Um, in other cases... Yeah. 
there were, um, whether it was crimes or, as Jeff said, just anything that would really jeopardize the safety of one of the subjects or a crew, for that matter. Because, you know, for all intents and purposes, uh, Jeff and I were not likely to be the targets of any type of retributive action from the film. It would be the subjects. It would be the crew that's living in Colombia. Um, and so the concern was really, is there anything that is either incriminating um, which hasn't already been processed and heard in a court of law, um, or jeopardizing uh, the safety of somebody. Uh, and part of what we were trying to do with the film was uh, change the perception of Colombia during those years. It was a very superficial, tarnished um, image that the not only the United States but the rest of the world um, saw Colombia through this lens of you know a hotbed of violence and. Um, just these rogue, lawless barbarians. And, of course, the, the vast majority of the population are peace-loving, uh, hardworking people with, with universal desires that are easily relatable across the world. And so we didn't feel it was our position to create uh, or to take sides and that it was much more important um, that we offer persuasive access to everybody in the story and to their psychology and their emotional motivations and then let the audience um, get involved in that tug of war. Well, I mean, you see that tug of war and that, that psychology even within the Colombian team itself when they're competing in the World Cup in the U.S. They talk very openly about wanting to be a source of you know, like pride and hope for the country and be ambassadors of the country to change the perception of the country. Soccer became part of the national pride. Colombia! Colombia! There is no greater honor than wearing the national color. Sino que es el mejor equipo de este continente, el mejor exponente del fútbol de América en el campeonato mundial de Estados Unidos el año entrante. When there is so much terrorism in place, you need to sell people hope. But at the same time, you can't really ignore the fact that there was corruption and drug money right. sort of through and through in Colombian soccer. So, like, what did you learn and how can you characterize the sort of corruption in Latin America and its connection to soccer throughout the 70s and 80s into the 90s? You know, soccer in particular to the, the story of Colombia in those years, and you can find this in other parts of the world today, um, it also was a great vehicle for money laundering. You had the possibility of, I mean, particularly in a stadium where many of the transactions are cash transactions, if you take in a million dollars cash, uh, but declare you took in two million dollars cash at that game, you've just successfully laundered a million dollars. And the same can be done with player trades and so forth. So it has certain advantages in the world of criminality. Um, but moreover, it's also the most loved sport in the world and that isn't exclusive to people on one side of the law. And so you have a lot of people, like in the case of Pablo Escobar and then the Rodriguez Orejuela brothers, and they all had their teams during this era of narco football where um, it wasn't just about money laundering. It was also a way of squaring off against their rivals and a point of pride that can only be had in that arena. Like a little guy has a, a car, with a remote control, that was their toy. And the money they spent, that was petty cash. And in the Drug Enforcement Administration, we tracked traffickers all over the world to soccer championships. But we were the only people that were connecting the dots. Everybody else was too caught up in winning to notice. First, 
you get your toy, right? But then you want your toy to be the best. And so with Pablo Escobar himself, I mean, there's times when you get the sense that people talk about, you know, he would buy teams or, or support teams because he thought of them as sort of vanity projects. But then there was other times when he was really kind of doing a hearts and minds kind of thing and building uh, stadiums. But then, of course, you know, he would turn around at any moment and order the, the killing of a player. Pablo Escobar would kill anybody to win a soccer game. Where do you ultimately stand on kind of what role soccer played for Pablo Escobar himself? So we never, it goes without saying, we never interviewed Pablo Escobar and and everything that that I'm about to say is built upon the research and the reporting that we did, um, the conversations we had with others. But, you know, the the argument that Pablo uh, used soccer as a plaything or as a as a hobby, um, you know that one holds a lot of weight, and a lot of people would agree with that. There's also a more psychological lens to see this through, where Pablo was deeply wounded by the neglect um, and the discrimination that he experienced growing up poor in Colombia, and that his deeper motivation, his sort of internal goal, um, over the course of his life, and it just strengthened. Uh, the more he got pushed back from the state was to create an alternative society, was to create the world that, that he wished Colombia was. And essentially by, by offering health insurance and schools and food and soccer fields to the, the working poor of Colombia, he was saying, this is a second state. This is the way I would do things. You know, it's interesting, this question, Jody, because it's it's really kind of up for interpretation. And you'll find people that will have different answers about Pablo in different, you know, parts of his life um, all over. And I think there were elements of his fight with the war with the state that had a lot to do with this alternate universe that Jeff is talking about. But I think it could equally be seen as motivated by a political campaign for him to get on the House of Representatives, which he succeeded in doing. And I think, quite honestly, my personal opinion is that for him, soccer was uh, the two things we talked about, a vanity project in a vehicle for money laundering and a sport that, frankly, um, he loved. After the break, we'll consider why Pablo Escobar has remained such an enduring cultural figure. Thirty for Thirty podcasts are brought to you by State Farm. These days, everyone is busy and may not know where to start when it comes to insurance. Well, State Farm has over 19,000 agents across the country who are here to help life go right. They're willing to sit down and take the time to understand what's important to you and create a customized plan to help you protect it. Think of your State Farm agent as that person on the court who is always reading the defense and knows exactly where you'll be even before you get there. When you have a State Farm agent on your team, you can always trust that they've got you. State Farm, here to help life go right. 30 for 30 podcasts are brought to you by OnStar. If you're ever faced with something as terrible as vehicle theft, OnStar can help. OnStar has the power of stolen vehicle slowdown. It's a feature that enables an advisor to work with law enforcement to get your stolen ride back, slowing down your vehicle enough so that authorities have a chance to apprehend the crook who took it. Get OnStar on your team today. OnStar is available on Chevrolet, Buick, GMC, and Cadillac. OnStar, be safe out there. Require select paid plan, cell reception, GPS signal, and working electrical system. Doesn't prevent theft, damage, or loss. Details at OnStar.com.
having helicopters, thinkers, soccer teams. It was the economy. With Pablo, there was no recession. Never mind all of his money was earned from cocaine. We don't want to talk about that. Let me ask you about the Escobar story and the Escobar myth and sort of Escobar as a cultural figure. Because, you know, we're, we're now living in a moment of narcos and uh, you know a lot of stuff about Pablo Escobar. And I will say that I think you had a role in first introducing an American audience or certainly an American audience of a certain generation to that. And so why do you think he continues to be such an enduring cultural figure? Well, you know, it's it, it's sort of like asking why Al Capone, you know, continues to yeah. be enduring. And um, I think there's or Scarface, even though he wasn't a real person, you know. And it's kind of interesting, like in the case of Scarface, I remember reading about, um, you know, the, the filmmaker's intention to sort of have a message that says, don't you know, crime doesn't pay, don't go down this road. And then, of course, Scarface has become sort of the celebrated icon of criminality throughout the world. Um, and that's something that we really grappled with when we set out to make the two Escobars, because more than any uh, culture we've encountered in Colombia, having lived through the 80s and 90s and Pablo's War, um, you know, it's hard to be a Colombian even today. Um, yeah, I was in a space the other day and somebody said, oh, well, I'm from Colombia and somebody else yelled out cocaine and somebody yelled out Pablo Escobar, you know, and those are just the tags, the scarlet letters, as it were, yeah. that get thrown on Colombians worldwide. And it's actually quite painful, um, you know, to, to have that be the first thing that people identify. Um, and so when we sort of were down in Colombia and starting to look into this story, that really affected us because... Um, having worked in Colombia even prior to the two Escobars, we really uh, feel a kinship with the culture there and didn't want to uh, propagate an, you know, a negative image. And so it was a big part of our sort of journey was how do we get away from that um, and bring to light what has been our experience of Colombian culture. Yeah. And I mean, sort of thing to think about rewatching this film that when you're t- when you have these two characters who are obviously tied together but also just need to be sort of compelling, two compelling characters. And one of them is Pablo Escobar, you know, this like massively compelling, interesting character. But Andres kind of holds his own just as a as a mm-hmm. compelling person. I mean, he is so right. beloved. He's so, you know, he played his own kind of role in the popular culture. He wasn't just, you know, random player X. Right, um, right. I don't know when you started to kind of realize that, that like, oh, we have two great characters to to counterbalance. We've actually found someone who can serve as a counterbalance to someone right. as dynamic as Pablo. I mean, that's just a credit to the actual um, story, what really happened. I mean, to this day, I mean, you'll see, um, you know, posters and flags and graffiti of Andres Escobar. He was the captain of the national team. He was, his nickname was El Caballero de la Cancha, the gentleman of the field. And he was really kind of held up as the poster boy of everything that Pablo wasn't. And at the same time, he's getting called to visit Pablo Escobar in the lead up to the 94 World Cup. So, man, talk about internal conflict. I think that the to add to what Mike's saying, there's a moral complexity, a moral gray area with both of them that, that as a viewer we can identify with. In Andres's case, he's got to turn a blind eye to the very thing that's behind the ruin of his people and his culture uh, in order to pursue this greater goal, right? To sort of 
uh, sort of sacrifice the means in order to achieve a, a, a greater end. Um, and in Pablo's case, um, there's a boldness that that we want to root for in fighting for uh, the underdog. And yet, it's in the context of him, by many accounts, being responsible for over five thousand five hundred homicides. Um, so, uh, in in both cases. I think internally, they're, they're as characters, they're choosing between two very difficult options, neither of which is black or white, neither of which is clearly right or wrong. And um, hopefully that makes them compelling, uh, regardless of whether Pablo created massive spectacles at a scale that Andres never could reach. I can, I can offer one more thought about Andres and Pablo that, you know, one of the, one of the things that I think is very interesting about the comparison of the two Escobars that we don't we don't really we don't have space to explore in the film is that Andres came from an upper class family. Pablo was of course born in the lower class, and um, Andres's family would would probably correctly be characterized as belonging to what's called La Rosca, or uh, which is a actually a pastry that's sort of like a Dunkin' Donuts munchkin. It's the inside of a donut. And it's used figuratively in Colombia to mean the inner circle. Uh, the fact that you had these two guys that sort of grew up on opposite sides of the proverbial train tracks in the same city with the same last name. Um, and, you know, even in their deaths, um, so much can be said about the future direction of the country. And there's a number of people who... Um, in the film and outside of it who really believe that without, you know, Andres Escobar's death, um, the changes that we saw happen in the last, uh, you know, what is it, uh, 25 years um, wouldn't have happened, that that was sort of the the ground-shaking event that needed to happen in order to take down the whole edifice and then have the phoenix rise from the ashes. It was at 3.30 a.m. 27-year-old Andres Escobar got into his car. He was surrounded and shot and killed. Allegedly, one of the assailants yelled, thanks for the auto goal. Shot to death early Saturday morning. It's believed that drug traffickers made large bets on the Colombian team and may have killed Escobar out of her bed. continue their search for two suspects. You know, we should make it clear that Pablo had was dead by the time that Andres Escobar was, was murdered. Um... Is there still controversy at all about kind of the details of Andres Escobar's murder? Has there been any further information um, since you guys, you know, tried to report this out 10 yeah. years ago or nine years ago? Yeah, interestingly enough. So right when we um, were leaving um, Colombia to sort of enter post-production, which we did up here in the States, uh, we got news that um, one of the Gajon brothers who were really kind of pointed at by a number of subjects in the film as the ultimate um, sort of orders behind the uh, shooting of Andres Escobar that fateful night in Medellin. It was their driver who pulled the trigger and served time. Um, but um, the accusation is that the brothers had given the order and uh, one of them was actually arrested during the time that uh, we were filming uh, and then uh, extradited to the United States a few months later. Whether or not that had to do with the fact that we were making the film, we'll never know. Um, and then just uh, last year, in 2018, uh, another one of the brothers was arrested and extradited uh, to the United States. And there was um, a number of articles in Colombia that came out pointing to his role in the uh, murder of Andres Escobar and citing the film. And 
you know, of course, from a filmmaking perspective, you hope that um, perhaps you could have played some small part in uh, in some justice there. Al expresar nuestro dolor y repudio, quiero hacer llegar nuestro sentimiento de pesar a la familia de Andrés, cuya tristeza es hoy la tristeza de todos. Jeff and Mike Zimbalist are the directors of The Two Escobars. They also directed The Youngstown Boys and in general have done a ton of great sports docs, music docs, and lots more. So look them up on IMDb and watch everything they've done that you haven't already seen. But if you want to watch The Two Escobars, the place to do that is on our streaming service, ESPN+. You can subscribe through the ESPN app. It's cheap. It's worth it. Get on it. Tomorrow in our anniversary series, Chris Heron, who has done two film projects looking at his troubled life and the lessons that can be learned from it. I remember getting called to assemblies like this to listen to some 35-year-old man talk to me about substance abuse. And I remember saying to myself, why am I here? I'll never be that guy. Chris is a really remarkable person. I was honored to get a chance to talk with him. So take a listen when that shows up in your feed. Thanks again for listening. My name is Jody Avergan. We'll be back soon with more 30 for 30.